probably one of the highlights of my time in ministry at OSU is being able to watch God grab these students and grow them up and um, to be able to watch a team like this form that's getting ready to go and uh, many have already moved and uh, several others are on their way to pit. Uh, but watching God do that transformation process in their life where they go from being people who don't even know Jesus in some cases to people who are now willing to lay their whole life down. It's just a beautiful thing to watch um, and it really, it's a picture of who God is. It's, it's also very difficult because some of uh, my friends, people who I love very dearly, are going to leave to go off to another city. But it's also a joy in my heart because I get to watch them honor and obey God. Um, one of the things that we thought about, you know, and, and when you're trying to put together a church plant team, you know, a lot of times they have a lot of needs and you need a lot of talent, but that wasn't our number one criteria. Our number one criteria was character. We knew if they loved God and if they had character, then it would be a beautiful thing to be on that mission in Pittsburgh. You see, because your mission will be a reflection of the character that God has developed into your life. I was at a uh, conference uh, last summer, and uh, at this conference I was there with another fellow named Robert Pinkston, who is a collegiate church planter up in Quebec, Canada. And uh, we were with this group of people who were getting ready to plant a church on a campus, and they asked us this very question. You know, we have a lot of needs, and we've got some people who are extremely talented who could fill some great roles for our church, but we're a little bit concerned about some of their issues. And I was getting ready to answer, but Robert said, listen, your people will forgive a lack of talent, but they will struggle to forgive a lack of character. Your people will forgive a lack of talent, but will struggle to forgive a lack of character. And that statement just kept... Like, a, like a, a bell in my head over and over again, reverbing. Because I knew it was true when he said it. You see, character is that which is true of you. Your makeup, your characteristics, things that are true of you, that's what your character really is. Not what you say, but what your life really is. Character oftentimes comes and is forged through your life experiences, through struggles and hardships, but dominantly comes from being around people who have the biggest influence over your life. And we know dominantly what that means is it's your parents. We've seen, and it is clear, that when there's good character, it gets passed down to the next generation. Oftentimes it's embraced and become even stronger and better in the next generation. We see consequently that sometimes bad character gets passed down to the next generation, gets embraced, and oftentimes becomes even worse and stronger in the next generation. Creating a chain of sin that happens in people's lives that literally puts a stranglehold on them. It's important that we understand this because if we're going to live lives on mission, if God really is who he said he is, if we really trust in him, if the gospel is true and it's in our hearts, then we know we belong to God and we are living a life on mission and if we are on mission, we have to realize that God is going to use our character as a reflection of what he's doing in and through our lives. So how do you and I figure out what it is that God's trying to do in our character so that we can understand what God's trying to do in this mission? So what we want to do this morning is to look at a couple different pictures of scripture, a couple different stories of character so we can understand a little bit more. And I, I'm hoping that God will speak to us and help us to understand what he's trying to do in our lives personally. So pray with me before we dig into the word. Lord, I ask that um, this morning that you would use the word of God and your Holy Spirit to penetrate the hearts of the people in the room. 
You, God, are a specialist at convicting and encouraging hearts. And I pray that you would pull off the calluses of our hearts to help us to see the reality of who you are. I ask, God, that the people here would forget that it's me up here speaking and would connect to your heart and your spirit. And they would respond accordingly. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, the first story I want to tell you is a story about a guy named Lot. And before I get to Lot, let me just give you some background. And, and let me just, you know, I don't know where you're at. So let me just say that if you're here for the first time, you've never been on the journey with God, or if you need to be reminded, starts out with the story of Adam and Eve. God has, you know, makes these people, he makes a creation, and he wants to interact and show the people who he is. There's a fall, and that goes on down through the generations. Then there's Noah, and then after Noah, down through the generations, there's a man named Abraham. God chooses this man named Abraham to become his follower and to be the father of a nation of people that God would show the world who he is through this one nation. Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Abraham um, cared about his nephew Lot and uh, Lot had some issues. Uh, In fact, at one point in time, they were traveling together and they were becoming too big for the land to kind of handle both sets of families. And so they decided to separate and Abraham said to Lot, Lot, you choose where you want to go. You choose here, I'll go here. Whichever one you choose. And and Lot said, I'm going to go this way. And Abraham says, fine, I'll go this way. And eventually, Lot ended up settling in a city called Sodom. You might know the story from scripture that Sodom was a very wicked city full of sin and God was going to cast judgment on this city and allow it to be, I don't know, whatever God does with a nuclear bomb or whatever he does, he's just going to blow it up. And, uh, you know, he sends his angels of the Lord to, to Abraham to tell him what he's going to do. And Abraham pleads and, and basically what's going to happen is God is going to send these angels over to the city and pull Lot and his family out of the city. So that's what happens. They pull him out of the city and here's kind of like the next story that happens after that. Found in Genesis chapter 19. <clears throat> Verse 30, here's what it says. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. And one day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is our custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine, and that night also. And the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. I don't know if you're like me, but that creeps me out. (laughs) But that story is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible. Because if you're going to make up a religion, you would not put that in the Bible. You would conveniently get that one out, put it under the rug. You would not share that story. It's in the Bible. There's a reason. All word is profitable. Why did he put that in the the Bible for us to know? That's what I'm thinking. That story is creepy. What would make two girls think to do something that deceitful? They thought it out. They planned it out. They executed it. And it was basically incest. That's what's happening in order to become pregnant. An awful, deceitful act of incest. 
What would make two girls have that type of character in their life? Well, you got to look back to the father. What kind of man was Lot? Remember I said that Abraham gave him the choice? Lot was the younger. He should have said to Abraham, no, Abraham, you choose first. I'll take the other, whatever you decide. But he said, no, I'll take this. This It's where I'm going. This looks like the better place. I'm going that way. Look back in the chapter, chapter 19. Remember, the angels came to, you know, Lot and his family and ended up staying in his house. Here's what happens in chapter 19, verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Listen, it's, it's hard to understand a culture if you don't live in it. In that culture, here's what was important. Shame. If, if he had let these people become harmed underneath his roof, he would have been shamed, and he would have carried that shame as his reputation in the culture. He was unwilling to suffer that. So he was willing to offer up his daughters to meet this problem. Who does that? How do you explain that? You see, the character of Lot was self-preservation. He thought of himself above all things. And so he offered up his daughters to this mob. Who knows what they would have done with the daughters? So it's not that far of a stretch to believe that character got passed down to the daughters who are now acting in self-preservation. In that culture, you have to have a heritage. You have to have people who, in the line here to protect you. They were simply acting out of the character that had been forged in them and what they've witnessed with their father. That's how it works. Oftentimes, character that gets passed down in a negative way gets embraced by the next generation and gets passed down and becomes a chain of sin that puts a stranglehold on people's lives. You and I know this because we've experienced it in our own lives in different ways, have we not? We all have certain chains on our life that we've willingly dropped into. If you you don't believe that, let me just give you a modern example, okay? Let me tell you about a friend of mine. We'll, We'll call him Willie, okay? Willie, in his early teen years, became sexually active. He was that guy. You know, the guy in the locker room that would tell the stories again and again and again about what things he was doing with this girl and this girl and this girl. Constantly looking at girls as if they were objects to be conquered. Sex was some kind of conquest to win and then to brag about. In his late teen years, I got to, you know, I was living with him. We were rooming together and I watched as his lifestyle was one after another, after another, after another. There'd be people calling the house, people asking me, what's he doing? And I'm like, I'm staying out of this. I watched triangle situations happen. Eventually, as he got a little bit older, he wanted to settle down. He met a girl and he decided to get married and have children. They have three kids together and they've been married for several years. And uh, about three years ago, 
in a parking lot about midnight, just outside of St. Anne's Hospital, he and I had a conversation. His wife had called me previously and said, Ed, you've got to talk to him. He'll listen to you. She explained that she thought he was in an affair. And as I sat and talked with him in the parking lot that night, he was explaining to me what was going on. He had left his wife and was living in another place. And um, he said that at minimum, it was an emotional affair. He promised he hadn't slept with her. He was telling me about all the problems in their marriage. And he explained, and honestly, they were legitimate problems. It wasn't like he was making the stuff up. They had legitimate problems in their marriage. And I looked at him and I said, listen, you have to learn to love your wife and you've got to lead her in these things. And she's going to respond to that. And he looked at me because you know my past. Maybe I'm broken. Maybe I don't know how to love. And I said, you need to know the author of love. The author of love will help you. And if he's in your life, he will help you to live that out. And you'll never figure it out until you know the author. Fortunately for him, the story's not over. You know, they did reconcile. And I have hopes that God is going to invade his life at some point. Before you judge him, though, because I know what you're thinking. You've got him classified in your mind, and you're thinking, this is who he is. And before you do that, let me tell you something about his dad. You see, his dad championed this kind of behavior, would share his sexual exploits with the son, would affirm this. I know for a fact he watched pornography with his son, in his son's teenage years. But before you judge the dad, okay, because I know you wanna, you're thinking about what kind of dad he is, his father took him to a brothel in his teenage years for his first experience. Can you see how bad character getting passed down can be embraced and passed down and eventually can become a chain of sin that affects everything in someone's life? Fortunately, there's, there's another part of scripture I get to share that's, that's a much more beautiful picture and really is a picture of something bigger. But turn, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, and let me kind of explain what's going on here, just the context of Ruth. Um, so there's Abraham. Abraham becomes the father of a nation. They end up down in Egypt. 400 years later, there's a guy named Moses. Moses brings him out into the desert and then eventually the next guy in line is Joshua and Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. They have to get through Jericho. Remember the walls of Jericho and there's the, the prostitute that's in the walls, kind of protects the spies and you know, the walls come down, they get into the land and then eventually that next generation is where we're talking about. The time of the judges before Saul becomes king, that's the time of Ruth, okay? And here's kind of the context specifically about this book. There's a woman named Naomi. She's married and she has two sons. She lives in Bethlehem, but for whatever reason, they move to Moab. Moab is another country that's close by, and she decides to go there with her two sons. Her two sons meet two girls. They get married, and through some circumstances that are not clear, all of the men die. So now you have three widows. In that culture, three widows, real dangerous. Um, we're talking about, you know, they could be... You know, killed, they could be taken advantage of. You know, they have no offspring to take care of them. And so Naomi says to the daughters, I'm going back to my people in Bethlehem. You know, there are some laws in place that maybe they'll take care of me. You guys need to leave. And the girl's are like, no, we're going to stay with you. And she's like, no, you, you got to go. I've got those other sons. There are no prospects for you. She doesn't want that life for them. One of the daughters leaves, but one of the daughters-in-law, a girl named Ruth says, no, I won't leave. And here's what she says in chapter one, 
Verse 16. Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's making a huge commitment even if it costs her her life. She's saying, I will be with you and your God, I will serve. Well, God had done some crazy things way back in Leviticus and Numbers. He had set up some laws, laws like this, something called a kinsman redeemer. And what that basically means is if there's a widow, a next of kin will marry the widow and protect her and give her offspring so that she has a heritage. They also set up another law, a law about gleaning. And what that means is, let's say you had a field. If you harvested your field, you were, you know, the things that were left over that dropped on the ground, you didn't pick them up. You left them so that people who couldn't take care of themselves, poor, widowed people, they would come in and they would take that food off the ground so they would have something to eat. So God set these laws up way back here. And here we see it played out that there's a kinsman redeemer. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Boaz had a field. And so Naomi tells Ruth, go and glean on his field. In verse five, Boaz asks the former of the harvesters, whose young woman is that? And they tell her, they tell him rather, about who she is and how she left her people to take care of Naomi. Verse eight, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Now Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Look at this verse. Verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz knew that his life was not his own. He represented someone much bigger than himself. That's what it looks like to be on mission, to realize you represent someone bigger, God. Goes on down to verse uh, 15. It says, As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So basically she gets all of this food. She goes back home and Naomi is just overwhelmed. She's like, oh my, Boaz is taking care of you. And he says, she tells Ruth, he's a kinsman redeemer. So she she tells her, this is what you do. This is how you let the kinsman redeemer know you're willing to be redeemed. And so they hike this plan and I don't really understand it, but here's what happens. Chapter three. Verse 7. Now, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered the woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So what's happening here with Boaz? Is Boaz has the opportunity to take advantage of her right then and there. 
But Boaz is not that kind of man. He actually protects her character first and foremost. Makes it so that she doesn't uh, have kind of an ill reputation by taking, you know, doing what he could do. On top of that, he's already given her such kindness by making sure she has food and make sure Naomi has food. But he knows that there's someone else that can redeem that's nearer in the line. And he's unwilling to break that law. This shows incredible integrity. So what he does is he says, I'm going to go and go to that person, work out a deal. He, if he can redeem, great. If not, I'll do it. So that's what happens. He goes the next day. He works out a deal. The guy's not willing to redeem. Boaz is going to redeem. They strike the deal. And here's what ends up what's happening in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. What's interesting there is we're talking about a little love story, right? In a little tiny town. This guy, Boaz, sees someone who is hopeless, who can't take care of themselves, and he decides to show kindness to them. On top of that, you see this man, Boaz, have incredible integrity and not take advantage of this girl. Do what is right, even if it was going to cost him something. This little tiny picture. Remember, God set a law in motion way back in Leviticus. And then he's coming to fruition in this, in this story, this beautiful story of a kinsman redeemer. That's a picture of something greater, and I'll, I'll get to that. But here's what happened. It set free someone who was hopeless. The character of Boaz is one of kindness and one of integrity. This is who you and I have to be. If we're going to live lives on mission, we have to have that type of character that God forges into us, that we're kind to those who literally are broken, that we have integrity in our lives so that literally what's being shown through our life is a picture of our great God. But what do these two stories have to do with one another? They're kind of random. Story of Lot, story of Boaz, kind of random. How are they connected? And what is it that you and I need to learn from their connection? You see, God uses men and women of character to break the chains of sin. He uses men and women of character to break the chains of sin. Let me show you the chain of sin, just in case you're not familiar. Flip back to Genesis 19 with me, if you would. You know the story, right? You know the story of this incredible act of deceit and incest. Verse 37 says this, chapter 19 of Genesis. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Moab, the Moabites. If you know anything about the Moabites, here's what you're going to find out. They were polytheists. So they rejected the God of Israel. They were in idolatry. They worshipped many gods. This nation occasionally warred against Israel tried to put them under slavery and tried to take advantage of them. Tried to destroy them. The Moabites, do you know what was typical of their whole clan of people? They would sacrifice their babies by burning them to their gods. That's what was typical of the Moabites. Do you see how one act of deceit gave birth to a man who became the father of a nation that became just wrapped in the chains of sin? 
bad character passed down and embraced and passed down and embraced and becoming something where an entire nation of people in rebellion against God doing ridiculous acts. And here's this woman, a Moabite woman named Ruth, has no opportunity to know God, wrapped up in the chains of sin and in this group of people, and yet God handpicks her and draws her into this relationship. A man named Boaz. Listen, in the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, when it talks about what happens, they have a little boy. In verse 21, it says, Boaz was the father of Obed. You guys know Obed, right? Think about Obed, the son of Boaz. Obed had a little boy named Jesse. You guys know Jesse, right? Jesse had seven little boys. The youngest little boy of Jesse, real great with a sling stone. Could take out a giant from like 30 feet. That little boy became king of all of Israel. The incredible king that had a heart of God, King David. The forerunner to let us see what the real king would look like. In the line of David would finally come a thousand years later, this young man, Jesus, who is the great kinsman redeemer that you and I both see. Can you see how God used a man to break the chains of sin, to bring in a man that would eventually break all of our chains of sin? Where did Boaz get character like that? That's the kind of character I need in my life. But you got to look at Boaz's dad. It says here his dad's name is Solomon, but you wouldn't know who he is unless you went into Matthew, into the genealogy that most of you guys usually skip over when you're reading, but you know... (laughs) Here's what it says, Solomon, verse 5, Matthew 1. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, prostitute in the walls of Jericho. You know who she would have been? A foreign woman who was worthless, a prostitute who wasn't worthless. And this man, Solomon, married her and raised a little boy named Boaz. Where did Boaz learn the character? He saw it modeled day in and day out that you take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Everyone is worth something to our king. Listen, this is a type of character that we have to have. Do you know why? Because you and I are all caught up in the chains of sin because we're all offspring of the Moabites in a way because we're all in rebellion against God. That's what sin does to us. The power of the gospel can break the chains of sin. And we need a great kinsman redeemer. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, Ed, you're a pastor. I'm glad you're up here telling the Bible. But let me tell you something about my life, just for a second, okay? Just stick with me. And I realize I'm a guest, but I was one just like you. I needed a kinsman redeemer in my life. You see, Willie, the guy I was telling you about, Willie, that's my brother. I grew up with Willie. We have the same dad. That could be me. That could be my life. But through the grace of God, he put some people in my life to share the gospel. People who were beacons of hope. People who knew they were living on mission, who shared the gospel with me. And as the gospel started to take root in my heart and I got into a lot of struggles and God was trying to build some character in my life, I had beacons of hope at that time to help me interpret what was going on, to help me see the love of God so I could embrace that. 
And I'm blessed to have lots of people like that in my life that have helped, helped me understand the love of God and what he was trying to do through the gospel. And my, my life, honestly, I just want to lay it down before our God and say, God, use me any way you can. And right now, God has me in a position to influence college students and give them hope so that they will understand this incredible kinsman redeemer. This is who we need to, to know, this kinsman redeemer. And some of you guys in this room, I fear in a room this size, man, you're just here because it's either socially acceptable, it's, what, it's the right thing to do, You've been following God. You just don't want to tick God off and you're hoping that this, this will make up for it. Listen, that'll never work. You're never going to earn you know, a way to pay back your sin. You owe a debt. You can't pay. I don't know what your student loans were like or what your bills are like, but this is bigger. Your sin, you can't pay it. That's why God knew that he loves you. He sends his son. That's the gospel, the good news. He pays the debt that you can't pay sends his own son down here. Do you know why? Because he wants to redeem you. He wants to pay that ransom and get you back into his fold so you'll be reconciled back to the Father. That's what he wants for your life. Why not be redeemed? Maybe you've heard about God, you've heard about a Savior, but you've never allowed him to be your kinsman redeemer. That's what he wants for your life. If you're sitting here and you're like me, you made that decision a while back, but you're going through tough times and you're thinking, God, where are you? God, where are you? This time is too tough. This situation is too rough. Why aren't you doing something, God? Well, we know for a fact, the Bible says in Romans 5, that God allows sufferings and trials in your life for the purpose to teach you to persevere. And as you learn to persevere, that God will use that and produce character in your life. And that character will produce hope, which will never leave us disappointed. Can you not see that if God produces that character in your life, you will become a beacon of hope that God will use to break the chains of sin through your life. The gospel being poured out through your life, rescuing those who need rescued and redeemed. Look, I'm, so some of you, I know you've probably never met me and I'm just a guest speaker to you, but I'm, I was just like you, sitting in these seats, being ministered to and ministering at this church. Can I just encourage you to respond to God? Sometimes it's a moment that I had week in and week out in a seat just like this where I responded to God that God was using to propel me to give more opportunities to serve God in other ways and to come close to him. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God. So I'm going to ask you to stand up and pray with me. And um, I'm going to prompt you a little bit. But what I want you to do is I just want you to close your eyes and bow your heads and think about what God is trying to get into your life what he's trying to say. And as you're thinking about God and thinking about what he's trying to say, ask him, God, show me what it is that I need to respond to. If you're in that first group and you know you've never actually made that decision to say, God, become my redeemer. If that's you, just tell God, yeah, that's true, God. Here's what you do. You tell him, God, I am sorry for living my life my way. And I want to come underneath your wing. I want to live for you. I want you to be my God. Tell him that you're sorry for your sin and just ask him to forgive you. Tell him you believe in his son. You believe in what he did on the cross. You believe that he rose again and he's alive and now drawing you into this relationship so you can be reconciled to the Father. 
The Bible says anyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just tell him, God, I call on you to become my great kinsman redeemer. I want to live my life for you. If you're in this room and you're going through a hard time and you just need someone to pray with, there's some prayer partners that are going to be on the sides of the, the room and maybe during this prayer time or during our worship time at the end here, maybe just slip out of your seat and go pray with them and talk with them. Sometimes it helps. Pray that God will give you perseverance. If you need to come down front to talk to God, to make a commitment to him, whatever you want to do. But for everyone in this room, can I just ask you, would you talk to God about what it would look like to offer your life to him, to be a beacon of hope, to live on mission so that God would use you to break the sins, those chains in someone's life? God, I ask that you would simply work in our lives here this morning, that um, you would take the truth of God, the truth of your word, and your spirit, God, and just infuse us with yourself. Help us in this room if we need to go and, and kneel, if we need to go get with a prayer partner, that we would just do that now and do business with you. But God, what we want more than anything is that you would be close to us, that we would sense your presence in us, and that you would make us into men and women of character to be used as your servants so that your name would be made great, so that your great uh, redeeming qualities would grab people and help them to know that you love them too. In your son's precious name we pray.